Welcome, creatures of the night, and everyone else to another episode of the Night's Off Podcast. I didn't actually think I'd be saying that again, but here we are, like a year, <laughs> year and a half later uh, from the last episode. I'm actually alive, and to the three of you who actually asked if I'd ever bring this back, well, here we are. Uh, I think I'm honestly going to turn this <laughs> podcast into a horror film-themed podcast. Uh, I've been putting a lot of thought into it, and I know that, um, I've been kind of meandering in terms of what I actually want to do with the podcast theme-wise, and uh, if I want to have it with guests, and we're figuring stuff out. Uh, but, you know, this Halloween season in particular, and really the past uh, few months in general, have just really uh, kind of opened my eyes and solidified my view of what I feel about horror overall and how much I love it. Uh, I'm a big movie buff to everybody who knows me in my real life. And I'm always talking about films that people have either never heard of or uh, just think are very strange in general. Uh, but I do like watching multiple kinds of films, but horror is for sure my number one favorite in terms of genre overall. And I figure at least for the next few episodes or so, maybe even going forward, who knows, um, I did want to spend some time to just get on here, review some films that I've checked out recently that I think are really worth your time, that I think are really cool, doing cool stuff overall, and um, yeah. As a preface, I don't script really any of these episodes, so bear with me if I sound frazzled, or bear with me if I sound like I'm trying to read stuff, because I probably am. <laughs> I, I think this is just a better format overall, in terms of just like really heavily scripted podcasts. Uh, it doesn't come across as authentic, in my opinion. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, feels fake. <laughs> um, and in the end, again, these podcasts, um, for me personally, are just meant to generate conversation, stuff for me to look back on and, and you know, assume that we had, um, you know, really cool time having really cool conversations about really cool things. Uh, hence why the ch shift into something that I think is really, really cool. I'm hoping uh, going forward that I will have guests, but for tonight's Halloween night special, this actually is being recorded on Halloween, um, it'll be just me flying solo. But going forward, I'm really hoping to find a few guests to bring on here to also talk about these films um, that we'll be for sure talking about. Um, so in these three, uh, in this, well rather, in this particular special Halloween episode, I'm going to talk about three films that I've seen in the past two days that I think were really, really cool. Uh, a lot of these are actually films that I've been waiting to see for quite a while because a lot of them have been delayed by the pandemic. Two for sure on this list. I think the uh, third one as well, actually, but I'm not entirely sure about that, but I'll point them out as we get to it. But here's how the format's going to go. I'm going to talk about the films, I guess in terms of rating-wise, or at least how I personally rate them, I'll start lowest and go all the way up to the one I enjoyed the most. I'll save that for the end. But the three films we'll be talking about today are Antlers, which is a horror film that just came out in theaters uh, on Friday. I'm going to be talking about an animated film called The Spine of Night, a film that also saw a theatrical release uh, this past Friday, and you probably guessed it, the last movie I'll be talking about is something that also got released on Friday, which is Edgar Wright's new film, Last Night in Soho. Overall, I think all of these are really, really, really solid films, but um, to talk about format, like I was saying before, what I'll do is when I start talking about each of the films, because I do intend to spoil some of this, I do want to talk about uh, them a little bit lengthier. Um, so what I encourage you to do um, 
is if you had not seen these films or have any interest, go ahead and do so. And then maybe come back here to listen to my thoughts about it overall. I'll talk about each one in general so you get a feel for each one right now before diving in. Uh, if any of you listeners are of that mindset that you want to go and go watch it before coming back to listen to a, a lengthier breakdown or so. But last night in Soho, I would give it overall 3.5 out of 5. Really, really solid film. Uh, a psychological thriller that has horror elements for sure. Uh, and definitely kind of a, a left field turn out of director Edgar Wright because here we see him using a lot of tricks and working with a genre that he's not used to and using a lot of directorial tricks that he uh, is also not known for because he's known for really stylized visual storytelling with a lot of really cool cuts and a lot of really cool um, visuals elements that cut really fast and really, really uh, bring this strong visual presence to the plots that he normally uh, works with. This time, he doesn't really use any of that, which I think is really, really cool for a director. Uh, you know, he's nearing 50, <laughs> to my knowledge. Uh, so it's really cool at this point in his career that he's willing to change up the game and really experiment a bit with some new stuff, for sure. Uh, so if you if the idea of Edgar Wright, you know, director of Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, uh doing something a little bit more uh, psychologically you know, thrillery. Um, definitely check it out. Super solid casting, which I'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Definitely worth your time. Um, the other film, Spine of Night, which is uh, directed by two people, actually. Directed by Philip Gillette and Morgan um, Galen King, who, um, as far as I'm concerned, have a lot of experience in animation overall. And this film um, took them about 10 years to make. It is a dark fantasy, very adult <laughs> cartoon, <laughs> very gory, very violent, savage, uh, dark fantasy type story that almost plays out like an anthology film and that it has a lot of short stories, but they do ultimately connect to this kind of higher overarching plot. That one I give a solid 4 out of 5. Fantastic uh, genre piece uh, that will very much appeal to anybody who has any interest in D&D, sword of sorcery, dark fantasy overall, which frankly I find to be a rarity these days. We don't get too many of those uh, that I can think of that have come out in recent years, especially in animated format too. Uh, I cannot stress the savage <laughs> as a descriptor that I use. It is very gory, it is very violent, uh, and sometimes unapologetically so. So if that sounds like something potentially up your alley, I would highly recommend it for anybody who's into uh, adult animation. Uh, and again, I'll talk about it in a little more detail in just a little bit. And then last but not least, Antlers, uh, directed by Scott Cooper. Uh, Scott Cooper of critical acclaim on uh, his past few films. He likes to work a lot with Christian Bale, and he likes to put out a lot of these kind of uh, crime-based uh, dramas. So it's really cool to see him take a very hard pivot into horror um, at this point in his career as well. Antlers tells the story of... I also... Oh, uh, I give that a solid 4 out of 5 as well. Uh, really, really, really good film. Really, really cool. It tells the story of a young boy named Lucas who experiences trauma in the form of his family how do I put this something happens to his uh, parents uh, of a supernatural nature and it very much takes on uh, both a physical and a mental effect on Lucas 
who's trying to go about living his normal life, uh, living in this house all by himself, which is unknown to the other characters in the film, at least on the onset of the film. And as it slowly unravels, you uh, learn more and more about the very, very supernatural presence I'll allude to that is very present in the film uh, that is causing havoc in both Lucas's life, but also the town in which Lucas lives in. Um, it is very, very thoughtful. It's very, very much a piece that reflects a lot on trauma and abuse and uh i definitely think it is very very much worth your time if you like uh, or especially horror framed from the perspective of a child um so definitely check that out if you're so inclined so yeah each of these gives my uh, gets all my recommenda uh, recommendations very much praise out of me and i guess having given those initial ratings um out of the way uh we'll talk we'll start with the one i enjoyed the least and then we'll go up to the one i enjoyed the most so We'll talk about Last Night at Soho first, uh, which is kind of funny to say that I enjoyed it the least because I would consider myself very much an Edgar Wright fanboy. Really, really like Edgar Wright. Uh, Hot Fuzz, uh, Shaun of the Dead, his original um, TV series that he became famous for, even before those movies, Spaced, uh, even his new documentary about the Sparks Brothers. Really fantastic director. Uh, very unique style of direct um, directing with like I mentioned before with his really stylized cuts really stylized uh, uh, visual storytelling that he employs that's very much present throughout a lot of his work even in uh, stuff like Scott Pilgrim versus the world which is one of his more fun things uh, that movie like has that whole visual storytelling on blast um, so like I was alluding to before, it's really cool to see him at this stage of his career kind of pivoting into any new genres um, that he normally doesn't work with and then working with uh, kind of a taking a step back from all those uh, little idiosyncratic uh, niche um, elements that he's kind of like put himself in Hollywood for sure and cemented himself in his kind of place for sure. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this movie a little bit more in depth. Um, the cast is pretty great. We have Thomas and Mackenzie playing a girl named Eloise. Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, sorry, Anya Taylor-Joy. His career is extremely skyrocketing um, in the past few years. Like, she's appeared everywhere and that's awesome because i think she's truly fantastic she plays a character named sandy in this movie um this movie also sees matt smith uh the doctor himself from doctor who <laughs> or at least the happy doctor that everybody likes um he plays a man named jack in this movie we also see uh, michael aho uh play john michael aho if, if you've seen the movie attack on the uh, attack the block that kind of alien film that takes place i believe also in london uh, that um, it's cool. I, I'm pretty sure that's the only other film he's been in, so it's kind of cool to see him show up in this. Uh, hoping that he shows up in other movies. And then, we, of course, we get the two, like I guess, big hitters in terms of Hollywood overall. We get Diana Rigg, uh, who plays Miss Collins, super legendary, extraordinary '60s actress, um, who's perfect for this film because a lot of this film actually has a lot of flashback sequences that do take place in the '60s itself. Uh, most people probably remember her from Game of Thrones. Um, and unfortunately she actually passed away last year so very much rest in peace to Diana Rigg I don't know if this was the last thing that she was in um, but honestly like if it is it, it's a pretty decent send out uh, in terms of just career I, I think she does a fantastic job in this movie and then lastly we have Terrence Stamp uh, who 
<laughs> I lovingly know as the main character from the film The Limey, which is a fucking phenomenal film. Definitely check out The Limey if you haven't seen that. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go ahead and kind of spoil the film by talking about what quickly happens in this movie as a whole. Um, but this movie is about this girl named Eloise, who is played again by Thomas McKenzie, and it's shown that she has lost her mother prior to the film, and she's even able to see her mother literally appearance-wise, uh, like she literally sees her mother within win- in, within mirrors. And that's going to be a recurring theme in the film, this idea that Eloise can see people through mirrors, because it is heavily implied that she's kind of inherited some form of mental illness, potentially from her family, uh, perhaps in the form of schizophrenia. Uh, It isn't really clear-cut as to if, whether or not she actually does have some variant of mental illness, but it's it's very much heavily implied for sure. Um, She gets accepted into a fashion school in London, and this prompts her to uh, leave... Uh, her current living situation where she lives with her grandmother and it seems like this kind of countryside uh, somewhere in Britain or maybe on the outskirts of London um, and she goes to live um, she goes to live in the school where she gets accepted to in the fashion school and upon immediately uh, upon getting there she's very much bullied by the other girls uh, from the school she's uh, kind of already outcasted from everybody just because of these girls who are very much pushing her to the sideline for really, really dumb reasons. <laughs> Which prompts Eloise um, to then seek refuge outside of the school, and she actually ends up using her own money to buy herself an apartment somewhere um, that's away from the school just to escape the bullying and uh, the really toxic women that she's forced to roommate with. And here's where kind of the onset of all the more insane problems of this film come in for Eloise. Um, What we find is that she ends up in this apartment complex, which is run by um, Diana Rigg. And it's seemingly idyllic at first. It seems like it's something that she really, really um, loves. Uh, she loves the aesthetic of it. Uh, she says it very much reminds her of an old 1960s uh, flat, and it's, it's shown that Eloise kind of has this fondness of the 1960s time period, uh, which will very much manifest in, um, throughout the entirety of the film. Uh, her, she, from here, it's very strange, but she begins to have uh, hallucinogenic dreams, or very vivid, vivid dreams, uh, where she sees herself through mirrors, like I had mentioned before, um, suddenly transformed into this other woman named Sandy, who's portrayed by Anya Taylor-Joy. And through her dreams, she's able to see little segments and little slivers of, uh, of Sandy's life um, in the 1960s. All these flashbacks take place in the 60s. Um, and here we're treated to a lot of that uh, fantastic set pieces, really fantastic visuals out of Edgar Wright. Um, but it's also the device by which the horror um, comes in because as every single night as Eloise is having these dreams and she's seeing more and more of Sandy's life we come to realize that there's something a little bit uh, kind of ominous going on in the background as the man Jack uh, who's played by Matt Smith who's plays um, somebody who's (laughs) I think at one point he's referred to as a pimp but he's supposed to be her, uh, her manager because Sandy wants to be a singer and we see that um, Sandy slowly, slowly begins to go down this really dark path uh, 
that's really, really controlled in, in a society in the 1960s in London by this kind of dark underbelly of men who, um, it goes to show that she, um, in the process of wanting her to become a, st- like, in, in the process of her trying to seek being a star, she's forced to, um, almost, like, sleep with all these men and do all these things that she does not want to do. And she's very much, it's, it's portrayed that she's being, per, um, controlled by Jack in a lot of aspects of her life and it's just being spiraling and um and it's interesting because Eloise uh starts to also start seeing visions in her real life when she's not even while she's in this dreaming state where she's seeing these um flashbacks of this woman Sandy's life she starts seeing Sandy in real life through mirrors uh even uh manifested in hallucinations with these other characters um and these other people and this is where some of the horror aspects come in too because they um edgar wright makes really cool use of um this effect on the men's faces that begin to manifest in her real life like these kind of apparitions of men which are supposed to represent all the men who slept with sandy or who caused sandy harm at least it's portrayed in the dreams uh it's really 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 cool how they don't have faces almost it's like it's kind of come to, um their faces are kind of smeared together and come off so you can't really make out a distinct face and they look very scary they're portrayed as these kind of dark figures who are kind of ominous looming around every bend um and to that end um eloise's life in real life slowly begins to deteriorate as she's trying to figure out what the heck is going on and what are the connection between her current room that she's staying in uh and this woman sandy who she's seeing um the movie does see a very cool twist by the end of the film we actually do come to find out uh that sandy is actually in reality the killer of all these men that she was forced to sleep with so where the film initially tries to kind of sway you in this one direction where sandy is the victim to the dark underbelly of this kind of male-dominated society of 1960s London, we come to find out that, no, in fact, she was actually killing all these men that she was forced to sleep with, and she kind of took her revenge on Jack, um, a.k.a. Matt Smith, and all these men who were uh, forcing her into these situations she didn't want to. And the apparitions that she had been seeing throughout the movies implied that they're actually helpful ghosts and they're actually trying to uh, lead her in this um, direction to break, almost not to protect her, but almost to, well, maybe they're trying to protect her. It's kind of not cut out clear because at one point they're kind of encouraging uh, for her to kill Sandy because as it turns out, you find out that um, the tenant of this apartment complex who's played by Diana Rigg is actually an older Sandy and that's kind of like the big twist of the film um so some of the themes because of this kind of twist become a little muddled and it very much delves into kind of this gray morality in terms of like oh who's the true victim of these atrocities that happened in the 60s who's the true victim um of it from both a male's perspective and a female's perspective and i do like uh that aspect that you know edgar wright invites you to be a little bit challenged in terms of where you personally stand on some of the issues that he presents in the film i found it a little jarring frankly (laughs) um with some of those particular aspects of of the plot um but nevertheless it is i do think a very 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 effective uh 
uh, bait and switch, if you will, um, in the sense that like the advertising of this film very much paints this mo- uh, movie as this kind of like clear cut, kind of weird horror film, but what actually manifests and what we actually get is something a little cool and a little bit more unique. Um, and I just spoiled it, but <laughs> that's what we're here for. Um, I will admit that the film didn't always hold my attention plot-wise the entire time, but it's definitely something I recognize that I did like overall. And I definitely think this is something that is worth watching. Um, and I would definitely encourage anybody who is a fan of Edgar Wright um, to go check this out. Um, it is very much not like some of the projects he's had in the past, but I think the amount of quality and the amount of effort that he clearly put into bringing this kind of like dual narrative of modern London with 1960s London to kind of blend into each other all around this kind of supernatural horror is really, really awesome. Uh, I think overall it very much lands. But again, I, I think another aspect that kind of like lent to my kind of like uh, disinterest a little bit in the plot, or rather it's um, not being able to hold my attention the entire time, was a little bit of the length. It does get really close to two hours in terms of length. Um, but um, overall, it's, it's still really, really, really solid. And I really, really mostly enjoyed this. Um, so definitely check it out overall. Um, yeah, I think that's all I want to say about Last Night in Soho. Um, which leads us into our second film, which is The Spine of Night. Uh, now, The Spine of Night is a movie that I would actually caught wind of uh, earlier this... Actually, like, super early in this year. Like, I want to say, like, uh, um, around January time. I had saw it making its rounds in film circuits, uh, film festival circuits, and saying and getting you know constant parades throughout. And I saw I looked into some of the trailers. I liked the visual uh, stock because again, this is an animated film. It's an animated film in the style of rotoscope animation, which I, I definitely encourage you to look that up. Rotoscope animation. Um, it's definitely something that you more than likely have seen before in the past if you've watched anything animated uh be it cartoons be it film uh even video games i'm pretty sure have made use of rotoscope animation but what rotoscope animation is overall is an animation style that employs a level of realism especially with the movements of the characters uh where um whereby you get this kind of animation style that feels a lot more not necessarily fluid because it can seem stiff at a time but it definitely feels more realistic and it feels more so like there is in fact somebody there making organic movements uh as opposed to um i guess some animation that most people would think of maybe as like anime for example (laughs) anime feels very crisp and clean where rotoscope has a level of kind of uh realism to it that i think is uh, not there so that's what it kind of differentiates it to you it's definitely something that you'd have to google image search for sure and take a look at or rather i encourage that for sure uh but yeah so like i was saying before uh in the beginning the spine of night is very much entrenched in dark fantasy horror um sword and sorcery really really cool uh genre piece that revolves around these genres and again, something I said that we don't frankly get a lot of um, these days. So it's really, really cool to see that we still kind of have some ambitious storytelling 
going on when it comes to these particular genres because I always jump at the chance of watching anything like this. Uh, and while I recognize it may not be for everybody besides us D&D nerds, uh, <laughs> uh, it's definitely something that's still worth your time if just for the fact that Rotoscope animation with this particular team can take a while. From what I understand, there was only three animators that worked on this particular film, which lend to it taking about 10 years to make. Um, so in that regard, I'm always a big proponent and big supporter of any uh, arts um, styles, like stop motion, for example, that just take a while. And it's very much a passion project from the creators, uh, for sure. But how to talk about this movie, geez, uh, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, like I mentioned before, it is revolved around the idea of it almost being um, posed as an anthology piece where you have little stories that kind of come together and they all work together to make this one mostly connective plot that's based around hmm, how should I tackle this? Okay, it's <laughs> it's based around um, this idea of this aspect called the bloom and what the bloom is is it's quite literally this kind of of living reef of blue flowers and this these blue flowers are very much posed to have very sacred and very very immense power uh, in terms of magical power and these things can do a lot <laughs> throughout the film they're shown to heal people they're shown to create great fires they're shown to do a bunch of insane things <laughs> and uh, the lead I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it's accurate to call her the lead character, but she's definitely one of the main characters that manifests uh, both in the external plot of the anthology series, where you have this witch named, I believe her name is pronounced Zod or Tzad, um, who is portrayed as a very much uh, um, this kind of very much a nude woman uh, who has this skull mask on her head. And she's very much fully nude throughout the entire movie. Uh, and she's this witch that has power. It's implied that she's had a long time with the bloom itself, where she would literally, quite literally, uh, wear it around her neck. Um, where she was a swamp witch, and she would use it to both benefit the swamp and benefit the people who live there. Uh, before we get this eventual plot shift where people use the bloom and take it from her and use the bloom for a bunch of more nefarious purposes um so she's i call her the central character because the external plot of the film is she's having a conversation uh with this man that's referred to as the guardian oh i also should mention by the way before i continue the, the voice cast of this movie is pretty fucking incredible like, there's a ridiculous amount of very famous people who play uh, the voices in this. But I, I, the, the two that stand out to me the most are Richard E. Grant, who, if you don't know who Richard E. Grant is, he's an actor in a lot of films, but he's also, like, a very outspoken big D&D nerd. So it makes a lot of sense that he's in this. Uh, but the other one I wanted to mention, because I can go on with the, a bunch of people who are in this film, but Tazad the Witch, she's actually played by Lucy Lawless who, if you don't know, is, is freaking Xena, man. <laughs> Xena the... Xena the warrior princess. Um, I, I have very vivid memories of watching all those, like, very uh, corny 90s uh, 
action shows, those live action shows like Hercules and Xena, the Warrior Princess, and yeah, Lucy Lawless is freaking Xena, man, so it's really cool to see her playing uh, some of the roles in these more fantasy roles uh, that we get. But anyways, uh, going back to the film, that was just an aside I had to say. Um, so the external plot of the film is that Tazad the Witch is having a conversation with this man called the Guardian. And they're kind of recounting the history uh, and the mythology of this world in which they live in that all revolve around the bloom and how it's both used for, at times, good purposes and other times for more nefarious and evil purposes. And it really creates this really cool sense of world building where we get to interact with these multiple perspectives from characters uh, from different corners of this universe that in some way have had... um, an interaction with the bloom itself uh, and from these stories uh, like I had mentioned before we get extremely graphic depictions of violence and gore uh, it is insane like we have people's heads getting cut off we have people's limbs getting cut off we have like people getting impaled from their chests and being and their swords being pulled out through their heads it's nuts and it's so great to see some of these more ambitious films depicting this. Because one thing I really like about uh, some of these more dark fantasy and sword sorcery stuff is when magic is depicted as something that can be horrifyingly dangerous in the hands of the wrong people. And that theme is very much cemented and solidified in this movie. Uh, But yeah. Um... So ultimately, this film does very much blend a lot of those fantastical elements uh, all around this kind of connective tissue between these uh, anthology stories, um, and they all culminate into something that I truly find to be satisfying. I mean, it was it was something to the point that like I was very much enthralled throughout the entirety of watching the movie, and it's something that I really would like to see more, frankly, of this universe if they are um, willing to get more. If I were to compare it to something. Uh, it's funny, I kept thinking, like, this movie's, like, Heavy Metal, that old 1970s animated film, which is funny because I haven't even seen Heavy Metal. <laughs> I, I really need to get on that, something that I've been putting off for quite a while. Um, but The Spine of Night very much gives off those vibes. Uh, it's similar to the manga Berserk, I guess. Like, er- I feel like everybody says when they think of Dark Fantasy that, oh, it's like Berserk. Uh, but in some light ways, it is like Berserk. Um... I can name a bunch of other comparisons, but I definitely think it's just something you got to experience if any of what I've described is of interest to you, for sure. Um, and definitely something that deserves a lot more attention, because I don't see enough people talking about The Spine of Night as much as they should be. And I'm really hoping that we get to see more animated projects from this duo uh, going forward between uh, Philip Philip Gallant, I'm probably mispronouncing their names, and Morgan Galen King. Um, but yeah, the last thing I did want to mention is the last film, which is the film that I think I enjoyed the most out of these three, which is the film Antlers, directed, like I said before, by Scott Cooper. Now, Antlers was a film that very much was... Um, Put, um, was pushed back because of the pandemic. Like, this movie was advertised. I very vividly remember it being advertised uh, early 2020, or maybe it was mid-2020. 
Uh, no, no, actually, no, 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 I'm sorry. I think this was advertised even in 2019. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But I very much remember it for sure happening before the pandemic, and it was um, the big grip of the film, or the big, I guess, um, selling point, rather, was the fact that this is produced by Guillermo del Toro. And I love Guillermo del Toro. I think Guillermo del Toro is a really, really interesting, or really, really fine uh, st- uh, stamp of approval for me, <laughs> or has a good um, footing in the horror world in terms of his love of monsters and his love of um, the macabre. And it very much blends and uh, into a lot of, and rather it bleeds into a lot of his projects, uh, not just the Hellboy films, which are fun, <laughs> uh, but like you know, stuff uh, from his other stuff for sure, like Pan's Labyrinth, for example. Uh, his love of horror and his love of monsters is at the epicenter of a lot of his work. Uh, he actually has a new film actually coming out where he'll be directing it coming out soon called nightmare alley i believe that comes out in december so i'm looking forward to that but anyways so he produced this film and um, that immediately got me hooked because this film was initially um portrayed to have this kind of like creature in the background and i'm also told this book uh that this movie is a novel adaptation and here we are finally getting it after so long because of the pandemic delaying it um, and it's it's really something. It's something that I honestly didn't think I was gonna like as much as I did, but I very very much like this movie. Uh, I'm gonna I guess spoil it now, <laughs> but uh, so let's quickly talk about it. Uh, I'm assuming that you've either seen this or just have, or maybe I don't know. Just want to hear me talk about it. Whatever. Okay, so. Antlers, like I said before, is about a boy named Lucas, who is played by, I'm trying to remember his name, I believe it's Jeremy Thomas, um, and right off the bat, I gotta say, Jeremy Thomas, for being a, 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 a young and <laughs> child actor, does a phenomenal job in this movie, he's very much the emotional epicenter of this entire film, uh, that very much, like I said, theme-wise, revolves around trauma, both physical trauma and mental trauma. And Jeremy Thomas, uh, due to an incredible makeup job that makes him look <laughs> kind of scary, frankly, um, very much embodies this in his performance. Um, so what this movie is about is the movie begins with a little boy and his father who are in these mines. And it is very much shown that the father in the mines that are extremely dark are just straight up making meth with this kind of work partner of his. Uh, and in these mines, they're attacked by an, uh, uh, an unseen creature that makes very loud noises, and this seem, it seems to be quite big, but we don't get like a, a clear shot of it, but they're attacked, which then cuts to present day, which shows us this little boy named Lucas. Now, we find out later on that the other little boy at the beginning of the movie is actually Lucas's little brother. I believe, if I recall correctly, his name is... Aiden. Yeah, yeah. His name, I'm pretty sure his name is Aiden, and the father's name is Frank. Um, so, anyways, so that happens, and then we cut to Lucas, who goes to school, uh, and we're introduced to 
his English teacher, whose name in the movie is Julia, who's played by Carrie Russell, actually. And um, we very much get to see that there's something wrong with Lucas. Um, he's very much detached from his schoolmates. He's getting bullied. He doesn't like to talk um, that often. And there's a scene that happens early on where he's asked to read a story in class for his English class. And he has these kind of horrifically drawn pictures in his notebook of really graphic, like, um, monster-like creatures that are bleeding blood out of their mouths. And it's just really gruesome, nasty drawings for a little kid to be drawing. <laughs> and he reads this a story that is symbolic of his own experience about this Papa Bear who became really sick and could not no longer take care of his little um, baby bears. And they're forced to feed him meat, and they're forced to do um, to appease him. We come to find out that this story is symbolic as very much the reality of what's occurring with Lucas right now. Because ever since that event in the beginning of the movie, we come to find out, like I said, that little boy in the beginning is his little brother Aiden. And he has both of his father and his little brother locked up behind this door in his house. And... You, whenever they show Lucas in front of the door, you just hear it rattling and you hear these really strange growling noises. Um, so something is very wrong. Um, cut to the teacher who's trying to figure out what's going on with Lucas as she takes interest in him as she slowly learns aspects about him that his mother has passed away, um, his father... He doesn't like to talk about his father, and um, he really care. And Lucas seems to very much care about his family, but he doesn't like to talk about them. And what I like is there's a scene in the movie where his teacher Julia um, starts to investigate as to what the hell is going on with Lucas. She actually goes to his home, where she stands in the doorway. And all she she can tell there's something wrong with the house. It's very dark. There's nothing. There's no light. Uh, but she hears um, that growling noise that I had mentioned coming, and a lot of like this banging. And unlike all these other really dumb characters in horror films, who would be like, "Well, I have to go investigate and see what's wrong," she actually <laughs> leaves, which I think is fucking awesome. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she leaves uh, to th reconsider her strategy or her approach to figuring what the hell is going on. Um, I will say that the first hour of this movie is freaking incredible. It's very dark and brooding and very atmospheric, and it carries this kind of dark and uh, brooding tone essentially from beginning to end, but the first hour, it's very prominent, very effective score uh, that really lends to the kind of these sad themes that we're presented with as to trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And honestly, I think I would have um, given the movie maybe even a 4.5 out of 5 or a 5 out of 5 had it kept that kind of nature, but we kind of get this kind of jarring break that I don't like that happens in horror films where a character out of nowhere just has to tell you, oh, by the way, this is what's going on. <laughs> and in this movie, uh, we get that out of a, char a character played by Graham Greene, who plays this Native American man who used to be the ex-sheriff of the town. And later on in the film, Julia, who's doing more investigation as to what the fuck is going on with Lucas. Um, a lot of murders are happening around town. Very gruesome murders, mind you. Like, very, very, like, 
nasty looking stuff where people's bodies are being disemboweled uh people's um are being cut in half and they, and you know there's semblance of uh what looks like to be human marks or bite marks on these bodies but they're the cops can't figure it out as to what the hell is causing this um and so getting back to the point I was saying, Graham Greene's character, who plays this old sheriff, uh, this Native American sheriff who used to be the sheriff of the town, literally pulls out a book and just goes, oh yeah, by the way, this is what's fucking up everybody in the town. <laughs> he points to a book that has this depiction of the Wendigo monster, um, who is a Native American spirit, if you're not familiar, that just really craves uh, to just feast upon human flesh, and is just a very very malevolent spirit overall and I think that kind of um, takes away from the film uh, when a character just kind of goes oh yeah this is what it is I, I personally prefer horror that doesn't explain itself per se to me and just kind of lets the insanity of its world play out but I don't think it's so much of a hindrance on the film but it was definitely something that I didn't that kind of bothered me um, but anyways come to find out that in fact uh, the um the father and the little brother who are chained inside the house are afflicted by the Wendigo um, that we saw a little glimpse of in the beginning of the film. And we come to find out that Frank, Lucas's father, has become the new host of this creature and is slowly transforming into it. And there's a really, 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 really gruesome, but also really sick transformation sequence that we get later on the film where we get to see this actually happen when he eventually does become the Wendigo itself. Uh, and uh, which ultimately leads to this really crazy sequence at the end of the film where Frank, uh, who's now in Wendigo mode, <laughs> the dad, takes Lucas and his little brother back into the mines that we saw in the beginning of the movie and through the knowledge that uh, Julia the teacher learns from the Native American sheriff uh, he, he she learns essentially how to beat it um, via impaling its heart and destroying its heart which leads to this sort of muddy and goofy uh, end sequence where she fights it and prevails <laughs> but um i will say the design of the windigo itself is really fucking sick uh for fans of the game bloodborne actually it very much has a striking resemblance to the cleric beast looks very very similar to it and i love the design of the windigo it's very very cool the film ends with a proper resolution as the windigo is defeated and Unfortunately, uh, Lucas does lose his father and his little brother by the end of the film. Um, but it's left open in the sense that one of the other characters, who happens to be the brother of Julia, who's in the movie, may be its new host. And that's how the film ends. Um, so let's talk about real quick things I liked and things I didn't like about this movie. Liked... Very fantastic atmosphere, very brooding, very dark tone that's very much sustained in a very quality format, elevated by its score. Uh, fantastic performances, particularly out of uh, the child actor. Um, really cool monster effects out of the Wendigo, and really cool scenes. And now here's a, here's a criticism. This isn't something that's bad for me, but um, I definitely see it as something that could be a problem for other people. 
because I've definitely had this discussion with other people, but one thing that might piss off people about this movie is that a lot of the kills happen off screen. And we it's really more so that we get to experience um, the aftermath of the Wendigo's attack as opposed to just seeing it like murder somebody in front of you. <laughs> um, and I can, uh, you know, that might be a problem for some people because most people just want to see the, the supernatural creature or whatever just uh, outright murder people. But I think that elevates the tone of the film personally. And I've defended this point before in the past for other stuff. Like, I think of, for example, Jaws, where they hold off on really showing you the shark. They, 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 you do get to see the shark early in the film, but I, it's really not until the end of the film where you get to see it in its full shark glory. <laughs> There's also director Gareth Edwards. Um, director of uh, this film called Monsters where you don't see the whole movie revolves around a universe where monsters have essentially taken over very large uh, creatures and you're told that they're everywhere in the world but you don't actually see one until literally the final scene of the film and that got a lot of flack when that film came out but I honestly saw it as a very interesting and artistic choice frankly to kind of hold off and save that that you want, I guess, you could say, to the end of the film. He does this again when he directed, actually, the first Godzilla movie in these recent uh, Godzilla remake, the American uh, remakes of the Godzilla films. When did that first Godzilla movie come out? When the Gareth Edwards made I think it's 2016? I think... No, 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 actually, wait, no, I think it's 2014, actually. Um... But, uh, well, whatever. Point being is that Gareth Edwards in that particular movie also got a lot of flack because he doesn't show off Godzilla um, in very meaningful ways until the very end. But honestly, um, to me, that made the movie better, in my opinion. Uh, again, maybe it's just me. I understand the criticism that style of film gets. But I think uh, kind of holding off on your main creature and then saving it for something more meaningful... Uh, really lends to both artsy flair, but also makes it for more effectiveness, I think, personally. Uh, so in this case, less is better. At least for me. <laughs> but uh, So that's one thing I can see being an issue for some people with the movie Antlers. But I'm very much a sucker for any film, especially a horror film, that's framed from a child's perspective and the child experience. And the things that Lucas is forced to... Oh, one thing I forgot to mention, actually, now I'm thinking about it right now, is that there's a connection between Lucas and the teacher character of Julia because they both have experienced trauma. Uh, Julia, the character of Julia, has actually... It's shown and very much implied that she's been affected by uh, trauma from her father um, who it's very much shown that she physically and sexually abused her um, and so I personally think that's an in, uh, it lends this interesting touch to the film where both these characters are trying to get past their trauma via um, crazy supernatural creature <laughs> bullshit but nevertheless in a very emotive way uh, and it's it's very it's framed from a, a tender perspective on uh, this kind of abuse, and it's nothing that um, is taken lightheartedly. And I appreciate that about the movie, and I definitely think that's why I enjoyed it the most out of these three uh, horror flicks that I chucked I chuck out, checked out, chuck out, whatever <laughs> chucked out uh, these past two days. Uh, and definitely the one that gets my highest recommendation. I definitely think you should go check it out in theaters if you do get the chance. Um, Hopefully we'll see it pop up on streaming soon if you prefer to just rent your films at home. Um, but yeah, I think that's about it. 
I don't want these episodes where I'm by myself to be particularly long. Um, I just want to talk about these movies <laughs> a little bit. Um, tune in next time when we do talk. I'll, I'll more than likely get a guest for next one, but if it's just me, I'll just go ahead and pick out some more stuff. But I, I definitely want to cover a range of films, both new and old in terms of horror. So maybe we'll check out some more classic stuff next time that'll get recommendation from me for sure. But uh, very much want to wish everybody a happy Halloween. Um, stay safe out there, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, keep watching, keep watching some spooky movies. Y'all have a wonderful night. Happy Halloween. Stay safe, everybody. And thank you so much for listening to the Nights Off podcast. Goodbye, everybody.